0: This Psalm seems backward. At the first half of the Psalm, you see David praising God for how he's delivered and vindicated and forgiven David. And then in the second half of the Psalm, David is praying for deliverance. What's the deal here with this? Why would it work this way? Well, I think there's a real intent behind this Psalm and we see the same thing in other Psalms as well. And so I wanna answer that question of why this Psalm is backward as we read this Psalm. And also in this psalm, we're going to see an amazing, really clear picture of Jesus Christ himself. So there's a lot of great stuff in this psalm. Psalms 37 to 39 have been all about waiting on God. And here in Psalm 40, we see that that waiting is answered. God responds. There's a resolution to this theme of waiting. And and this Psalm 40 is a turning point in the book of Psalms, along with Psalm 41 as they end the first book of Psalms. And we enter into the second book. Don't forget, the book of Psalms is broken into five different books that all have sort of different emphases and different themes in them. So we've been seeing in that the, this first section, there's a lot of themes about David and his struggle with Saul and his running from Saul and, and different um, t- different things during that era. And there's a lot of struggle and lament in this first section of the Psalms. And there's going to be a shift as we move out of this psalm into the next book. In uh, There's going to be a shift that's focused on the kingship of David. So in the early church also, this was one of the psalms they read on Good Friday, as it does point to Jesus himself. So Psalm 40 was read on Good Friday, the celebration of Jesus' death on the cross. So the outline is simple. The first half, verses 1 to 10, is praise for deliverance. And then the second half, 11 to 17, Is plea for deliverance. So praise for deliverance and then plea for deliverance. So let's look first at praise for deliverance. Look at verses one and two. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So the psalm starts with the words, I waited patiently. Literally in Hebrew, it's I waited, waited. So the the word waited is repeated twice. And that's one of the ways in Hebrew you can emphasize a word. You can magnify it by repeating it. So there's an intensity here in this theme of waiting that we've seen in previous Psalms. But here God is clearly answering David as he's been waiting for God's deliverance. So I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. Inclining to someone is the idea of turning toward them to hear them and to look at them. So God is now turning toward David and putting his focus on David in order to deliver. So he understands that God's responding to his cry for deliverance. He says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. So he's in a pit trapped and held fast. So he's using this metaphor of being in this muddy, dark, destructive pit and he's trapped in there. You can think as you hear that idea of being trapped in a pit, you can think of Joseph, when his brothers throw him in the pit before he's sold into slavery, or Jeremiah, who's put in a cistern and he's trapped in this muddy cistern. But God takes him out of that dark situation, that hopeless situation of despair, and he places him in a completely different circumstance. Instead of facing disaster, David ends up on solid ground, on firm ground. There's the idea here as he's talking about how he set my feet upon a rock. Really, the idea is he put me in a high place. So he put him on high, stable, and secure ground where he's above the fray, above the attacks of enemies. So he goes from being down in the ground low to being lifted up high and secure. So David has had his circumstances completely changed by God's grace. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So he put a new song. So David is always talking about these new songs. And really one of David's big roles in the history of Israel was to transform the worship of Israel. So he's introducing new ways of doing worship, new liturgy, and new songs as well. Um, and here, this idea of a new song is is about more than just there's a new tune, but something that is brand new in terms of how we praise God. And so David is talking about, really, I think it, it points us to the importance of songs in worship, that the, the words that we sing, they're meant to reflect our praise to God. And um, God uses music to shape our hearts and to train our minds to know him better. So music has a very important role, and David understood that as we're, of course, right in the middle of this amazing, massive book of ancient songs of Israel. He says he put a song of praise. Uh, The word song of praise is the same word for the title of the book of Psalms in Hebrew. It's the exact same word. So he's he's referring to the Psalms, these, these songs that he's been writing down here in this book. Notice in the second half, though, of this verse, Fear and trust are paralleled. You know, I've said many, many times that the parallelism within the Psalms is so important that the Psalms use parallelism in almost every single verse. There's a parallel that's made, and sometimes it's a contrast of two different things, but often it's a it's a synthesis of two things, or it's a it's a synonymous parallelism. And so here we have fear and trust being paralleled in a synonymous way. They're spoken of as a, as if they're the same thing. And this is very helpful as we've been examining what does it mean to fear God. We see that fear is equaled in, in many ways to trusting in God. Fear is about trusting. Fear isn't about being afraid per se, but it's about trusting in God. It's about seeing God as bigger than other things of this world. So, for example, just to kind of prove this point, Exodus twenty twenty is a famous verse on the fear of the Lord, where Moses says to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Notice this. So David says, or sorry, so Moses says, don't fear so that you can fear God. So don't be afraid, but the result of that should be that you fear God. So how how does that work? How, How can you say in the same breath that we shouldn't be afraid and that we should fear? Well, the fear of God is not about just being terrified of God or afraid to approach him, it's actually about trusting in him and being confident in him and knowing that he is greater than the other things that we might fear in this life. So David here says to fear, which means to trust. And I love this because he says many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. How true is that historically? That many people, because of David's testimony of what God did in his life, many people will come to fear God and trust in him. There are countless stories of people who because of the testimony of the book of Psalms have come to a saving faith in Jesus. Countless people, right? Who have been shaped by the Psalms and then have gone and shared the gospel with other people. Um, these are central to the entire book, book, uh, our entire uh, Bible. And so of course they've had a powerful role in bringing many people to faith. So I love this as David is thinking about how God has delivered him and how he wants to now praise and tell other people about it. He's saying, my praise is going to result in the worship of others as well. And it's true. Uh, he goes on, he says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So I love it. He says, blessed is the man. Now, what does that remind you of? Before I say it, what does that remind you of? Blessed is the man. Well, of course, if you've been watching with us for a while, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say Psalm One, Psalm 1, that's how the whole book of Psalms starts. Blessed is the man who's not walking the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, right? So, but here instead of saying, blessed is the man who does certain things, it's blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. So the same idea is being brought around of, okay, how do we find happiness and joy and contentment and hope and all these things? Well, it's by making the Lord our trust and that trust in God, which is where peace and happiness and joy is found, that trust excludes other kinds of trust. There are trusts that, trusts that are antithetical to that. You cannot trust in God and also worship idols. And so he says, right, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. So there are certain people that he could trust in or look to, and he refuses to do it because they are dependent on their own strength. And then also, to those who go astray after a lie. So he doesn't go to those who go astray after a lie, meaning uh, that's kind of a, a term that seems to refer to idolatry in scripture. So he doesn't return. He doesn't turn to idols, he doesn't turn to idolaters or those who trust in their own strength. He decides instead to trust in God. Verse five, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, Yet they are more than can be told. So notice that the switch here, and it's going to continue for a while in this in this uh, psalm. The switch here from third person to second person language. So now he's not referring to the Lord, third person, but to you, you, my God, you, O oh Lord, my God. So he's now referring in a, in a personal way. So there's a switch here, and he has this emphasis here in verse five on the massive number of God's deeds and his thoughts toward us. So he's marveling at just the, the, the sheer scope of God's goodness to his people. You know, you can never ex- exhaust the stories of God's provision for you. The more you think about what God has done for you, the more stories are going to come to mind. The more you're going to look back on your, your life and you're going to see God's providence written all over it that God was working in circumstances to give to you what you need. You're never going to be able to tell all of those stories. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't try, right? We should live a life where we are rejoicing in telling people the stories of how God has saved us. As I was reading this and how he's saying, there are more than can be told. I thought of the old hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. It's weird, weird language to us in the modern day, but the idea is amazing, right? I wish I had a thousand voices so I could tell even more about all the things that God has done for me. If we've been saved by God, we have to overflow in praise for what he's done for us. So David is not only rejoicing in God, he's saying, I want to tell other people about what you've done. Verse six, he says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So when he speaks of sacrifice and offering, this refers to, there are different terms for, for sacrifice and offering here. So those first two terms refer to positive sacrifices. So they're sacrifices in the system of Israel that aren't for the forgiveness of sins, but they're about positive communion with God. So fellowship with God and offerings that are about drawing near to God. The burnt offering and sin offering, those two words in the Hebrew they refer to negative sacrifices. So those are focused on atoning for sins. Those are the two two types of sacrifices that are aimed at, uh, you know, kind of atoning for sins or looking for atonement for sins. So together those two terms show that the entire sacrificial system is in view here. And he's speaking of it in what seems like a very negative way. So is he here saying that the sacrifices laid out in the Old Testament aren't important, there's no need for them. Well, no, I don't I don't think so. I think what he's saying here is that obedience is more important. Obedience takes precedence over sacrifice. And the reason is because sacrifice is a provision in cases of disobedience. So, in other words, if you can't obey the law, God is gracious enough to provide a way for you to draw near to him in spite of your disobedience. But you're not simply supposed to, you know, choose disobedience. And then sacrifice is a way to make up for it. It's not as if that's how the system should work. So there's not re- repl- no replacement for obedience to God. Obedience is still primary. We are called to obey God. And this is important for us as we, you know, think so much about we, we as Christians, we obviously can bank upon the forgiveness of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for us. And that's, you know, obviously very different from these Old Testament sacrifices, but we can't forget the, the need we have for obedience that obedience is not an option that we're called to be obedient to God and he commands that and demands that of us and he has the right to demand that of us our lives should be ones that are lived in obedience to God now notice here too he's he's talking about sacrifices and the sacrificial system and, and how that's that doesn't replace or supersede obedience but also he's reflecting back on on different words in the scripture. So this these words and they may ring a bell for you. These words come from 1 Samuel 15. So in 1 Samuel 15, if you remember the story, Saul was called to wait on on uh Samuel the prophet to make the sacrifice and then uh well I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel 15, I believe, the actual issue is that uh Saul was called to wipe out the Amalekites and chose instead to offer sacrifices to God and to kind of make up for it. And so in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel says to, to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So it, what Samuel says in response is, No, God's not calling you to make some grand offering to him, some grand sacrifice. He simply wants you to be obedient to his word, right? Don't outthink God and say, well, I'm going to make this this big gift. I'm going to disobey what he said so that I can make an amazing gift to God. God doesn't want that. And so often we will fall into the same kind of thinking of saying, well, if I disobey God, I'll be able to serve him better. No, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. God does not need anything that we have to offer, right? And as the Bible says, if he did need something, he wouldn't tell us, right? So God doesn't need anything from our hands. Instead, what he calls us to do is to obey what he says. And so often we get caught up in overthinking things, right? Trying to find ways to, to be smarter than what God's word says instead of simply being submissive to the words of the king. That's what honors him. So this this is the story in 1 Samuel 15. This is the story when God turns from Saul to David. And this is interesting because even as we've seen the movement of the book of Psalms in the previous Psalms, a lot of them, that David's conflict with Saul has been in view. And now there's going to be a turning point here with this Psalm and with the next Psalm into the reign of David is sort of the, the idea that's going to be happening. So there's going to be a shift to that. And so just as... That's happening in the book of Psalms. David is highlighting it in this psalm specifically. He says, you know, you haven't called me to, to sacrifice, but instead you've given me an open ear. The idea here in the Hebrew is actually that you've, you've dug out an ear for me. So it refers to digging out an ear as if it's, he's a, a clay vessel or a clay statue and the, the potter is digging out an ear and shaping an ear. So the idea here is probably that he's, God is opening his ears or giving him new ears so he can hear and obey God's word. That seems to be the idea. And this is great because the Bible is so clear that God doesn't just command us, but he also gives us the strength to obey his commands. So we need not simply clarity from God as to what we should do, we need strength from God to be able to do it. And we often underestimate that. We think God should command us and then we have to do it on our own strength. No. God has to shape our hearts to give us a desire, to give us the strength to do what he commands us to do. Verse seven, he says, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So he says, behold, I have come. This is interesting language. So it's, it's as if there's somebody who's expected and he's finally arrived In fact, he says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. So there's, I think what it's saying here is there's some sort of prophecy in the scroll about David or about this figure that he's referencing. And then he says in verse eight, your law is within my heart. So scroll of the book and law are paralleled. So it seems like they're speaking of the same thing. So when he says it's written of me in the the scroll of the book, I think he's saying in the law, there's been a prophecy about me. And in this case, I think the the prophecy that we're probably looking at is Genesis 3.15, that there's going to come somebody who crushes the head of the serpent. And there, in other words, there's, there's an awaited one who can fix the problems of the world. And David's saying that one is arriving. Now, is David speaking of himself or is he looking forward to someone else? I, I think there's probably an aspect of both in this. David is obviously very clear that he is not the ultimate messiah that he's not the one who can fix the problems of the world we've we've seen that already as he's you know called to be the shepherd of israel but in psalm 23 he's saying the lord is my shepherd in other words there needs to be it needs to be god that rules over israel or psalm 24 which clearly indicates that david is not up to the task but there has to be a king of glory who comes in who is able who has the heart and has the, the, the words and the actions to live up to what God commands. So I think David understands that. So he's, so he's speaking of himself to a degree, but he's also pointing forward to the one who is to come, to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is foretold, the one who can fix all of these things. He says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Well, well that's the, the mark of a righteous person. Not to, not to just do what God commands, but to delight to do it, to say it's a good thing. To, do, to, to live righteously or to do good, good deeds. Well, that's true of David most of the time or some of the time, right? David does delight to do God's will. He fails in some huge ways. But this is much more true of Jesus Christ. And so I think when we see these words, we're, we're seeing the messianic promise and really a longing for what's to come. And in fact, we'll see the Bible interprets these words this way in Hebrews chapter ten. We'll see that at the end of of our time here. Look at verse nine, though. He says, I have, "I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have told the glad news." That's one word in Hebrew, and really, it's the it's a word that's the Hebrew equivalent of the the Greek word euangelion, or where we where we would might say evangelism or evangelizing so uh, glad news is really parallel to good news i'm telling i'm preaching the message of the gospel of the good news of jesus this is what's pouring out of my lips the, the great congregation might have in view either those who are gathered at the temple to worship god as one big crowd or the whole nation of israel he's saying i'm preaching the gospel in an old testament sense to the entire nation or to the entire gathered people of God. And this is great. David's not shy about telling the good news of God. And we shouldn't be shy either. He's boldly proclaiming it. I love it. He says, verse 10, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. I like love this double idea in this passage of hiding or concealing the good news. It's almost as if David is saying, you would have to intentionally conceal the good news, the good things that God has done and how he saved, because it's so natural to rejoice in them and to proclaim them to other people. It made me think of the famous words, I'm sure I've mentioned them a few times, from C.S. Lewis's book on Psalms. It's really the most famous section from that book, but C.S. Lewis talks about how we're built to praise things. We have to praise things. There's this inbuilt need uh, to consummate our joy in something by involving others, by, by praising it to others. We can't hold back from saying how great certain things are, how beautiful a sunset is, or, or how um, good our, our athletic team is, or whatever it might be, right? Or how much we love our, our significant other. All these things we delight to tell other people about because it consummates, it completes the joy that we have. And so David here is saying, I'm not going to conceal or hold back from what is most natural to me. I'm going to speak about what you've done. I'm going to let people know about your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So the first half here, the first 10 verses are all about praise for deliverance. God God has delivered him and he's praising and now let's move to the last eight verses, uh, 11 to 17, or last seven verses, and we see the plea for deliverance, the plea for deliverance. So he moves from praising God for helping him and rescuing him to going back and asking for God's mercy and deliverance. So he's going he's gonna to now switch, and he's going to be pleading with God to rescue him. And the, the psalm ends on a very really famous and powerful verse so why is he doing that is he is he uh really not delivered did he kind of kind of claim it at the beginning and then later he's saying oh I actually need you to do what I've already praised you for doing uh, maybe I think really probably what's happening here is David has a lot of things um, that he's dealing with yes he he's been rescued out of the difficulties with Saul and he's been placed on the throne of Israel and there is triumph and there is this this big procession, but David's going to have more burdens, right? It's true that heavy is the head that wears the crown. David had a heavy head. He had a very difficult challenge constantly as king of Israel. And so I think he's turning again and saying, I got more opponents. I have more sin in my heart. I have more burdens. God, I need you to deliver me. I need you to help me. So he's turning again. And really, I think, the, the praise in the first 10 verses becomes the basis for the plea in the, the next seven verses. Look at verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So he starts off as he's about to plea. He starts with confidence in God. He says, this is who you are. Just as in the last verse, verse 10, he was praising God for his steadfast love and faithfulness. Here he's saying, I'm confident that those attributes you have are going to be given to me, are going to be inclined toward me and deliver me from my trouble. And just as David hadn't restrained his mouth from praising God, he says, God, you're not going to restrain your grace and your deliverance from me. So he turns to God and he asks him for help. And this is great because even as you're praying, you should be thinking about who God is. Who is this person that you're approaching? And, and knowing the character of God and the works of God make it so much easier to approach him and to ask him for the right things. How much easier is it to ask something from someone that you know is generous and that you know when they've given before it hasn't been in a begrudging or, a, a, you know, guilt-laden sort of a way, but it's been out of joy. Well, you can come to someone like that and you can ask them if you have a real need. That's who God is. How much easier is it to confess to God when you know he loves to forgive you? Well, of course you're going to come to him knowing he's your loving father, not someone who's looking to to pin you with something or to, to get you and catch you in sin. Look at verse 12. He begins the plea here. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head my heart fails me so the focus here is on evil but the evil seems to be at least in part his own sin so he's saying i have iniquities that have overtaken me i'm blinded by my sin there there are clearly here in this section internal and external troubles that david has evil within and without um, opponents that are trying to tear him down and his own sin which threatens him and the scope of those troubles is in view here, right? They're beyond number. They're more than the hairs of my head. He's speaking in, in hyperbole. Just as he had earlier said that the, the goodness of God and his deeds and his thoughts toward us are beyond number. Here he's saying that the challenges I have are beyond number. And he's even close to despair. He says, my heart fails me. My heart fails me. So he's feeling like giving up. Verse 13, he says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. So David delights in God, but his enemies delight in his hurt. And he has people who are real opponents to him. Um, You know, the righteous have always had real opponents. Uh, I was just, you know, preaching this Sunday on 1 Corinthians 16, and we see David has an opportunity for the gospel, and he mentions, but also I have many people who are against me. Righteous people have always had opposition, but David knows that God can deliver him from those people again. And so he goes back to him, and he asks him for his deliverance. Verse 16, he says, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Longer longer than I thought it would be. Just got two more minutes, though. So. Um, yeah, I mean, just kind of start it right back up from there. Because the, the thing will still be on you, so it'll be a very clean cut. Awesome, awesome. So he's praying here that in God's grace, right, that those, those who seek him would also be glad in him. And it's amazing how in God's grace, that's exactly how it works, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, all right, that God hears those who trust in him and he delivers them. God knows how to save the righteous. We see that all over scripture. And then the ending here is beautiful. Verse 17, he says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So it's sort of a sad note at the end, but it's also hopeful, right? He says, "I, man, even as the king, even as being in this place of deliverance and triumph, God, I'm still, I'm poor and needy. And my only hope is that God is the one who's going to think of me and help me and deliver me. And so he asked that God would do it swiftly, that he would come to his rescue. And what a great verse to end this psalm on. It's a beautiful verse and worth memorizing. But we, before we end, I think we should, we should also point to how this, pass, how this psalm is, uh, is thought of in the New Testament. Right? We see in, in Hebrews 10, kind of in the middle of the author of Hebrews' treatment on the law, and on the importance of the law and how it functions with the gospel. I want to read this passage. So we'll see the quote from Psalm 40, but I want to read some, sort of more of the passage here. Um, look, look at Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So he's pointing to the ineffectiveness of the law. Verse two, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there, sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what he's saying here is that the sacrifices were made to remind people of their sin, not to actually atone for their sin. There was no actual effectiveness of atonement in, in substituting a, a ram or a bull or a dove for the sinner, okay? And that should be pretty intuitive and obvious, but these were all meant to point us to the need for a sacrifice and to help us to desire and long for that sacrifice to come in Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 40 in verse 5. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come to do your will o god as it is written of me in the scroll of the book so he's quoting here from the septuagint which is a greek translation or something like it the greek translation of the old testament but here He takes these words of David and puts them on Christ. Christ is the one who was foretold. He's the one who has come. He's come because the sacrificial system wasn't enough. We have to be obedient. And so that obedience is fulfilled first and foremost through the obedience of Christ. He in his body, in his life, obeyed on our behalf and he put himself in our place Right? taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. And now we're united with him, we're in him, and so we have a claim before the throne of God that we can be welcomed by God, that we're his children, that we're part of his family, that we're the body of Christ. And so it's amazing to think about how what David was talking about and longing for and looking toward has found its fulfillment in Jesus. So let, let's rejoice in this psalm. Let's be people who rejoice in God's past salvation and continue to look to him for his future salvation right we see it better than David did we know what Jesus did for us and now we can look forward to that final salvation on the last day